with you this morning. We are in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to begin our reading today in verse 12. We're continuing our walk through Genesis and looking now at the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 37 and beginning our reading in verse 12. We're going to read down to verse 17 and then we'll continue into the remainder of the chapter as we proceed. Genesis chapter 37 and verse 12. It says, And his brethren, that is Joseph's brethren, went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them. In Dothan, and we trust the Lord will bless the reading of His precious and eternal Word. The Book of Proverbs declares, "Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth." And how very true that is! You know, none of us know what tomorrow holds, or even what this day holds, and everything in life can change in a split second. It was only a moment down on the farm. Jacob's sons had gone back to Shechem. You recall that he had purchased some land there. And they'd gone to find pasture for their flocks. And owing to the massacre that had taken place there at the hands of Simeon and Levi, Shechem was now dangerous territory. And so Jacob's family would have been naturally uh, considered or observed uh, with suspicion and fear. And there was a possibility that someone might launch an attack upon them. So there was very real danger there, and Jacob was naturally concerned. Fearing for his son's lives, Jacob then sent Joseph to go find them, saying, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem. Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. Jacob didn't know it. But in that simple sentence, he found that his life was about to be changed for quite some time. It would be 22 years when Jacob next speaks to Joseph. 22 years of time will pass between Jacob and Joseph before he begins to converse once more with his favorite son. Here was a rather simple decision. Go and check your brothers. It's something that was made on the spur of the moment, perhaps, But by it, Joseph was about to be banished from his father and from his family's lives. Look at verses 12 to 17 again and see how Joseph was dispatched. We read that he was sent from Hebron and left the vale of Hebron and was sent to Shechem. Now Shechem was about 50 miles from Hebron. When he gets there, his brothers aren't there. He's got to go a further 20 miles north uh, to Dothan. Uh, but Joseph didn't know it. When he, when he closed the door of the family home behind him that day, he thought he was en route to Shechem, but he was actually en route to Egypt. 
You know, that move to Egypt began with this long walk uh, to Shechem. And uh, although Joseph was the favored son, he was also a faithful son. For no sooner had his father requested him to go than Joseph was on his way. That was his role. That's what his multicolored coat was about. Remember, it was, a, it was an indication of his seniority, of his, of his position over his brothers. We would say today he was a man who was in middle management and he was a white-collar worker. And, and so it was his job to oversee his brethren and to bring back a report to their father concerning them. Now, though Shechem was a treacherous place for him and his brothers, he never once welched from serving his father and going that way. And so in verse 14, we read, He sent them out of the field of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. That was a journey that took about three days, approximately. But when he gets there, his brothers are nowhere to be seen. They had moved on. Well, As Joseph arrives in Shechem, we see that he is found wandering in the field. Notice he's wandering in the field. He went to the particular place that was owned by the family and by his father, Jacob. He's out in open country, and he encounters this stranger who, who approaches him and asks him who he's seeking for and points him in the right direction. His brothers have now gone to Dothan. They've moved on a further 20 miles. Dothan means the place of two wells, and uh, no doubt it was that very cause that took them to Dothan. They were there in search of water for their animals. But when the Bible speaks of wells, you mustn't think of a well as a, as a western-type well. You know, the little, the little round barrel-type thing out in the middle of a garden or a field, and it has a little roof and a, and a spindle and a bucket on it, and you lower the bucket down into the water. And that's not what the Bible is talking about when the Bible talks about wells. It's talking about rather these rather deep underground cisterns, and they're potted all around the land of Israel. If you ever visit Israel, you might have seen one. Uh, when you go up into uh, Masada, as you're heading up into the mountainside there in Masada, there's a great big cistern that sits underneath that mountain that fed the inhabitants of Masada or, or provided them with water. And so from time to time, these cisterns will dry up. And such was the case at Dothan, as we shall see. So we see how that Joseph was dispatched, but I want to read on and see how his brothers were depraved. Look what it says in verse 18. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands, to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes, and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. 
and his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, growing up on Laban's farm, as these men had done, they had sat under their father's headship for many a year. They'd seen him blowing hot and cold with the Lord, up one minute, down the next minute, on fire for the Lord one minute, backsliding the next minute. And 10 years of that up and down routine had really produced a a rather worldly and carnal group of men. And we, we see that in our reading here. You know, we've already seen in this chapter how they hated Joseph, how they couldn't speak peaceably unto Joseph, and how their hatred intensified when he was given the code of authority, and also later when he revealed his dreams unto them. The very thought that he, of all people, should someday rule over them was simply insufferable to them. They couldn't bear the thought of it. And by the time we get to verse 18, we find that not only can they not speak peaceably unto him, but they can't even stand the very sight of him. From the moment he appears on the horizon, they begin to discuss how they might get rid of him. You might think to yourself, that's a rather cold way of dealing with somebody. But friends, this, these things happen. You know, I, years ago, I used to work in a drawing office, and, and, and uh, I sat, my desk sat overlooking the shop floor. And uh, so our drawings would go down into the shop floor where, uh, our, where the, where the uh, things would be made. And uh, there was one fellow in the shop floor who was a real pain. There's always one who's a real pain on the shop floor. And this fellow always found fault with our drawings. Always found fault, no matter what. And you would see him coming. I'd see him coming down the shop floor, and he'd be heading for the stairs that led up to the drawing office. And I'd say to the boys, here he comes. And they'd say, oh, no, not him again. And he would open the door, he'd come to the door, and he'd open the door, and he'd be holding up the drawing, and he'd be going, who drew this? Who drew this? Now, it said on it, who drew it? He should have known. Your name was written on it. But he'd always make a song and a dance about it. Who drew this? He would say. And then somebody would say, I drew that. And he'd go to the desk and says, how am I supposed to make this? How am I supposed to get in there? And he would complain and moan and groan and whine. And the boys hated him, absolutely hated him. And then one of the men resigned and a position in the drawing office became available. And believe it or not, the management opened it up to the shop floor. If anybody wanted a promotion and wanted to be a draftsman, he could come up onto the, uh, up, up onto the drawing office and he could learn on the job. Well, guess who got the job? The boy who was always complaining. He was not a popular figure in that office, let me tell you. So much so that we were, we were working. This was back in the 1980s. The troubles were ongoing. And uh, at that point, you know, the IRA were, were targeting uh, men and companies who were involved building RUC stations or uh, building uh, army barracks or anything, anything related to the security forces. They were targeting companies that were involved in this and shooting people on, on sites and so on. And so, uh, you know, we, our company did that. We, we did a lot of RUC stations. We uh, did uh, prisons. We did uh, army barracks and so on. 
And so the, the way it worked was this. Our boss would come out and he'd say, you know, such and such a place. He'd say, McGalbury Prison, who wants to do this job? Who wants to take this job? They give you the choice whether you wanted to be involved or not because you'd have to go out on site and there was the possibility you might be attacked. And so, so they give you the option not to do it or to do it. And so he'd say, who would do this job? And the guys would kind of hem and haw about it for a little bit and then somebody would eventually take it. Uh, but eventually they, we realized that there was a boy in the office that nobody liked. And so we said, he'll do it. And he became nicknamed the target. Because <laughs> we figured if the IRA was going to shoot any of us, he should be the one that should be shot because he'd annoyed us for so many years. Well, that wasn't very kind. But Joseph was the target. You know, everything that, 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 that was within those men, all the hatred, all the resentment, all the bile, everything that came out of them was targeted at Joseph. Joseph was the target and they wanted him dead. Now notice how disparaging of him they were in verse 19. It says as he approaches them they said to one another behold this dreamer cometh. Literally this master of dreams. They said oh here he comes. Here comes the dream expert. Oh let's hear what he's got to say to us today. They were sick of the sight of him. And it's interesting that they despised him, that they, and in despising him, they decided to do him in. You know, and, and it was his dreams that bothered them more than his dress. They didn't say, oh, here comes the guy with the, uh, the many, culture, many colored coats. Coat. No, he didn't say, here comes the guy who got the, got the fashionable coat. No, here's the dream master. It was the dreams that bothered them. They could live with the coat of many colors. But when he began to speak about the future, when he began to share the revelation that God had given him, they resented him all the more. Friends, isn't that the truth? Let me tell you something. As a Christian, the world will tolerate you. It will happily let you go to church all week long. People in the world don't care if you're reading your Bible. They don't mind if you sing all the hymns. They don't care if you're praying for this or praying for that. They don't mind one bit. We can have as many meetings as we want to have and there'll be people in the world who defend our right to have these meetings. But understand this, when you start talking about the Lord, when you start talking about the gospel, you let a man open up about Jesus. And then see what happens. You see how they balk and how they mock the word of God? Behold this dreamer. This dreamer. So they began to discuss what they ought to do and how they ought to do it. And notice right from the first they had an explanation ready. They would kill him and they would say, some beast hath devoured him. This was an idea that came into their heads later on. Uh, this was something that they had thought about. It was premeditated. It was a lie that they had constructed in advance. It wasn't a spur of a moment thing. They were thinking it through. And, and having fed their bloodlust at Shechem, they were quite willing for the most part 
to put their own brother to death until Reuben spoke up. Notice it's verse 21. It says that Reuben said, Let us not kill him. Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, into this well that is in the wilderness. Lay no hand upon him. Now here's the thing about Reuben, and we'll see this as we go. Reuben is a double-minded man. You know, one moment you see him callously lying with his father's concubine, and the next moment you see him intervening and interceding on behalf of Joseph. You know what the Bible says about a double-minded man? It says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And when we get to chapter 49, you'll find that Jacob on his deathbed makes prophecies concerning his sons and the tribes that they would spur. And he says of Reuben that he was unstable as water and shall not excel. And so he was. Reuben is a double-minded man. I wonder, are you a double-minded man? Are you a double-minded woman? Are you a young person who's double-minded? You haven't made up your mind to serve the Lord no matter what. One day you're hot and one day you're cold. One day you're up and one day you're down. One day you're in and one day you're out. Let me tell you something. You'll never excel. Your Christian life will never mean anything to you. And that's what we find with Reuben. All the while here is poor Joseph and he's making his journey, he's going in good faith, he's simply obeying his father's will, and as he's making his approach, he's blissfully unaware that his brothers are plotting his death. And as he arrives, they jump him, they wrestle him to the ground, they tear off that hated coat, they tie him up, and they lure him into one of Dothan's wells. And then they sat down to discuss what they would do next. Look at verse 25. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked Behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. You think about their cold-heartedness. Here were these fellows with their own brother, their own kith and kin, just a few yards away, and they're discussing with an earshot of him how they're going to finish him off. You know what a terrible place that must have been for a young man, for a teenage boy. Subject to this abuse by grown men, dropped into a well, into a pit out of which there was no escape, and then hearing them discuss how they were going to put him to death. And Scripture speaks to us of his cries and of his concerns in this moment. Look in chapter 42 of Genesis, chapter 42. This is later in the story when they confess their sin. And, and it says in verse 21, they said one to another, Genesis 42, 21, they said one to another, we are verily guilty. We're truly guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. The prophet Amos, whom we'll study in our Wednesday night series in a few weeks, Amos chapter 6 and verse 6, refers also uh, to this incident. If you want to look uh, to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 6 and uh, verse 6. He makes an analogy. And he says they, that drink wine and bowls 
and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. Here are people who are enjoying luxury and pleasure. They drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. That's where Jacob's, uh, that's where Jacob's sons were. They were sitting there eating this meal, probably a meal that Joseph had brought to them, and they were absolutely deaf to his cries. They were blind to his cause. They sat down and they very coldly and very hard-heartedly discussed how they were going to deal with Joseph. Now, as luck would have it, a caravan trail happened to pass by. There were traders en route from Syria to Egypt. And I say luck and I say happened. Because that was probably how Joseph's brothers would have thought about it. But all of this was in the providence of God. You see, Joseph had to get to Egypt. It was God's plan for Joseph to be in Egypt. He had walked 70 miles of that journey on his own feet. But now he has another 250 miles yet further to go. And it's too far for him to walk. And so in the will of God, a caravan trail has been arranged to pass by at precisely the right moment so as to taxi and ferry Joseph all the way to Egypt. And spotting these Israelite traders, uh, Judah speaks up. And notice what he says in verse 26 of of our chapter. He says this, And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. What profit is it, they said. That's what he says. What profit is it? You know, that's, that's all that some people care about. There are some people and all they care about is profit. All they care about is money. They're worldly men with materialistic values. They they care for money more than they do for their own kith and kin. And so they decided not to kill him because he was their own flesh and blood. You see the hypocrisy. They wouldn't kill him because he was their own brother. But they were happy to sell him into slavery for a little profit even though he was their own brother. You know, some people are like that. They'll do anything for money. A very dear friend whose father was like that. And uh, his friend, uh, my friend's father owned a, 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 garden, a garden market business. And uh, he, uh, he was a very, very tough businessman. And uh, in that respect, uh, you know, his son got saved. He, he resented his son getting saved. He was very angry with his son for getting saved. He, he, he just hated the fact that he was attending church and, uh, and speaking to him about the Lord. And anyway, the man died in due time. He, came, he was on his deathbed and my friend went to witness to him and sat with his father and, uh, and began to share with his father how he needed to be saved. And his father cursed him to the face. And he cut him out of his will for witnessing to him. He cut him out of his will. Now, he had worked in this business uh, from he was eight years old, from he was a little boy, his father had trained him up with the hope that he would take over the family business in some, uh, some later time. But here he was now, a fully grown man, sitting by his father's bed, witnessing to him, having given his entire life to the family business, and now he's cut out of the will. The family business went to his brother. He received nothing from his father. Nothing. And in time, his father died. And I went along to the funeral out of respect to my friend, and, and I listened. 
as the Anglican vicar stood by the coffin and preached this man into heaven. Said what a good man he was and what a fine Christian he was. And shared how he had his favorite hymn was Onward Christian Soldiers. I thought, favorite hymn. That man never had a favorite hymn. He went on and on and on like he was the, the pillar of the church. And I just sat there and listened and as I often did in, in, in such services and just shook my head and thought, this man's on a different planet from the rest of us. And then his best friend was asked up to say a few words to bring a eulogy. And here's what he said. He said, I am so-and-so's best friend. He says, and I want you to know I've known him a long time. He says, the only thing that man ever cared about was money. That was his best friend. He said, in fact, he fell out with me over money. He says, money was the thing that drove him. And I thought, how sad that the vicar was such a liar and his best friend told the truth. You see, that's where some people are. But what did the Lord Jesus say? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You see, Judah was entirely along the wrong line when he said, what does it profit us? All he was thinking about was money. He wasn't thinking about Joseph. He was just thinking, well, let's not waste the opportunity here. We've got, we've got a product we can sell. We can sell it to these Ishmaelites. We can make a few bob here. We don't have to shed his blood. Uh, let's, let's do something more positive with it than that. And so they negotiated with the Ishmaelites and watched as, according to the Psalm 105, Joseph was taken off to Egypt in fetters and irons whilst they split the paltry sum of 20 pieces of silver between them, the price of a disabled slave. And then notice in verse 29 how Reuben was distressed. If we see how the, how the brothers were depraved, we see how Reuben was dis- distressed. Verse 29. Reuben returned onto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes, and he returned onto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I... Whither shall I go? Now evidently what happened here was this. Reuben said in verse 21, let's not kill him. And yet the conversation continued along that line. But Reuben left the scene. Remember, he's unstable as water. He's a double-minded man. Instead of staying there as the elder brother and, and trying to oversee the thing and give some direction to it and hopefully bringing Joseph back, he leaves it. He doesn't want to be part of it. He goes away from this discussion. He lets them say whatever they will. And the hope is as he comes back later on that they might maybe have moved on and simply left Joseph in the pit and he could lift him out of the pit and he could return him to his father. But that's not how it worked. That's not how his plan played out. It was not how it happened. His plan failed. And now discovering that Joseph has gone, that he's many miles down the road now, Reuben is distressed and he's desperate. How could he bring this news to the boy's father? How could he bring this news to a man who was still grieving the loss of his wife, Rachel? What would he say? And here's the thing I want you to see this morning. And this is true throughout both the scripture and in our personal experience. It's simply this. When man best plans feel God's eternal plan does not you hear what I said when man's best plans feel 
God's eternal plan has not. Later on, Joseph would recognize it was not they, but God who sent him to Egypt to spare that family and to grow a nation. God always knows best. And can I say to you this morning, even when your life takes a downturn, God always has it covered. His purposes are never thwarted. Never. Now we come to verse 31. And I want you to see how Jacob was deceived. It says, And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down to the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Notice their language in verse 32. They said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. You know, they tell their father that they have no idea what became of Joseph. That they had found his coat. It's interesting though, though they said they had found his coat, they don't tell him where they found the coat. That would be the obvious question to ask, wouldn't it be? You know, if, if it was one of my children, I would have said, well, where did you find the coat? There's the chink in the lie. They said, we found this coat, but they didn't tell him where they found the coat. And you see, there's a chink in every lie. And sooner or later, all lies are going to be found out, as these men will find their lie is about to be found out. You see, a lie is a very, pure, a very poor refuge when you're dealing with an all-knowing God. You can't lie before God. And you see that no more clearly than in this very incident because if you cast your mind back to 30 years before this moment when Jacob was deceiving his own father, how did he do it? Remember? You remember how he did it? He took the skin of a kid and he put it on his arms and he pretended that he was Esau. He used the very same animal that is now being used against him. He used the skin of a kid to deceive Isaac. And now they're using the blood of a kid to deceive Jacob. God uses the very same animal to remind the patriarch that you reap what you sow. And notice too how they reference Joseph as thy son. They said, no, now whether it be thy son's coat or no. They don't say our brother's coat. Thy son's coat. Here's the thing that they had to do in order to accomplish their plan. They had to distance themselves from Joseph. And that's what hatred does. Hatred dehumanizes another person. Hatred distances ourselves from our enemies. It turns our enemy into a monster. We no longer see him with any shred of affection. No concern for the individual whatsoever. It distances us from people. Here's poor Jacob and his heart is broken. He's lost his favorite wife to death. He's still cradling that hurt. He's still nursing that grief. And now he believes he's lost his favorite son to death also. 
Now I want you to go back to verse 11 and I want you to make a little note here. Notice how Jacob responded to Joseph's dreams. It says, And his brethren envied him concerning the dreams, that is, they hated him. But his father observed the saying. Notice that. His father observed the saying. In other words, he saw something of value in the dreams that Joseph shared. He saw something of the word of God in Joseph's dreams. He realized that these were not the words of a mere dreamer, that this wasn't just something that was proposed by some daydreaming teenager, but these were prophetic words that they had been given to Joseph uh, by God. And yet now he's been told his son is dead. And what happens? Jacob abandons what he believes to be true, and he allows doubt and unbelief to enter into his heart and fill his heart with sorrow and with grief. Friends, how many tears have we shed because of a failure on our part to take God at his word? Just to take God at his word. You see, Jacob is walking here by sight and not by faith. His eyes are on this blood-soaked garment rather than than allowing himself to yield to the inspired word. And, And very often we make the same mistake. We set our eyes upon our circumstances. We look upon our difficulties. We, we see the situation and we make a, a judgment. And we make a, a judgment call very often that is rooted in doubt and unbelief instead of holding to and trusting the very word of God. Here's the thing. If, if Jacob had thought this through, he would have realized that Joseph could not possibly have been dead. Why? Because the prophecy that Joseph had been given was yet unfulfilled. Neither Jacob nor his sons had at any point to this uh, precise moment in time bowed before Joseph. It simply hadn't happened. And and so as the chapter closes out, we find that far from being dead, Joseph has been sold on unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's uh, uh, and captain of his guard. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 3 for a moment. Proverbs chapter 3. Because as we think about Jacob's response, it reminds me of this very well-known proverb, this this series of proverbs, chapter 3 and verse 5, down to verse 7. It says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. You know this verse, you know it well. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Verse 8, it shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. You see, there's where Jacob's failure was. When they came along with this blood-soaked coat and said, this is, your, is this your son's coat? He should have said, well, yes, it is my son's goat. And when they said, well, he must have been dead. Some animal must have tore him in pieces. He should have said, well, that's not possible. Because I'm trusting in the Lord with all my heart. 
I'm acknowledging him. And, and I'm not going to lean onto my own understanding. I'm going to acknowledge him. I'm going to acknowledge his word. I'm going to acknowledge the prophecy that was given. I'm going to acknowledge what Joseph said. I'm going to, I'm going to rely on his dreams. I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to be wise in my own eyes. I'm going to trust God's word. Friends, listen. When it comes to the, some moment in your life where you're confronted with a situation which is calling you to face, to face facts and to look at things as they seem, will you abandon the word of God or will you hold to the word of God? Jacob should have held to the word of God. He should have held fast. So we see how that Jacob was deceived and then we see how that Jesus was depicted. Because throughout this whole chapter, whether you've noticed it or not, God has been painting a picture. He's been weaving an image of Jesus through each and every verse. Think about all we've read and and how that we've seen Jesus throughout. What do you have to begin with? You have a beloved son sent by his father unto his brethren, just as the Lord Jesus was sent unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His brethren had gone from Hebron, the place of fellowship, and moved beyond Shechem, the place of strength, to dwell at a place called Dothan, the place of two wells, the place of two cisterns, a dried up cisterns. What does Jeremiah the prophet say to ancient Judah? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's pictorial. It's picturing Christ. It's picturing the land of Israel when Christ comes and the people of that nation when the Lord appears. And like Joseph, the Lord Jesus was hated by his brethren for declaring himself to be a ruler over them. The Bible says he came on to his own and his own received him not. That's exactly what happened to Joseph. He comes over the hill. He comes on to his own and his own receive him not. They said, what are we going to do with this dreamer? Behold, this dreamer cometh. Not only that, but as with Joseph, so with Jesus, his brethren conspired to put him to death. John 5 says, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, which he hadn't, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And yet knowing their hatred of him. And you've got to admire this in Joseph because Joseph knew his brothers hated him. When he went out to look for them in Shechem, he was under no illusion. He knew they hated him. And so it was with Jesus. Jesus, knowing that the people of Israel would hate him, came nonetheless in search of those he loved. Only to be sold. Not for 20, but for 30 pieces of silver the price of a slave. And like Joseph, Jesus was lowered into a pit. You say, well, I don't remember reading that in my Bible. No, you need to know a little bit about Bible geography to understand what happened there. You see, if you ever visit Israel, you may have a chance to go to the house of Caiaphas, to the high priest's palace. And in that house, there is a, it's a very strange thing for a house. You don't normally think of a house in these ways. But there's, there's a cell block where prisoners were kept. But there was also in that house a pit. 
a great big pit, a big hole in the ground into which particularly sensitive, politically motivated prisoners were kept. And they would have been lowered down into the darkness of that pit and they would have been left there in the end to see what was going to be done with them. That's exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus. If you go and visit that pit today, you'll see that the early Christians have marked the place with a cross. They've etched a cross into the mouth of that pit because they wanted to signify to future generations that this is a place where Jesus actually was. He was lowered into a pit whilst they discussed what they were going to do with him. And they didn't care for the anguish of his soul. They had no thought for him. And in time, what happens? They lift him out of the pit. What did they do? Well, what happened with Joseph when they lifted him out of the pit? They turned him over to the Ishmaelites, to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happens with Jesus. He's lifted out of this pit and he is delivered unto the Romans. He's given over to the Gentiles. And they nail him to the cross. Do you see it? Do you see how the life and experience of Christ is being played out before us right here in Genesis, in the very first book of your Bible? You see, the Bible's about Jesus. That's what it's about. From beginning to end, it's about Jesus. And here we are, we haven't even turned to the book of Exodus, and already the Lord is laying before us the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Acts chapter 7, I want you to turn there for a moment. Acts chapter 7. There's one more cross-reference to all of this. And it comes from the sermon that Stephen preached just before he was martyred. A wonderful sermon, a powerful sermon. A sermon in which he didn't hold back one iota. He laid it all out. But in the midst of this sermon, he makes a reference to Joseph. And he says a a little thing concerning him. He says in verse 9, And the patriarchs moved with envy. Notice what they did. Sold Joseph into Egypt. Here's the line I want you to see. But God was with him. Now, that's the phrase that's so important. God was with him. You know, there are many years of trials and hardships ahead for Joseph. This is only the beginning of a very rough journey. But God was with him. He's going to go into Potiphar's house, but God was with him. He's going to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, but God was with him. He's going to be in prison for up to 10 years for a crime he did not commit, but God was with him. He's going to be then promoted into Pharaoh's court, and God is with him. And then his brothers are going to appear before him, and they're going to confess their sins before him, and there's going to be a great reunion, and God was with him. You know, there, there are many times we think to ourselves, God is not with me. God is with you. God was with him. And friends, I want to say to you today, no matter how difficult your life may be right now, no matter how hard it may be, no matter what troubles have landed on your door, no matter uh, what you may be hearing whispered in your ear by this one or that, there is no well so deep that God cannot reach it. And there is no pit so great that God cannot pull you out of it. You know, many years later, King David would write of his own experience with the Lord saying this, 
He brought me up out also of a, sorry, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the merry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. You know, a number of years ago I was preaching in Armagh Baptist Church. I always remember this. You know, the Bible says, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. And uh, I was talking to one of the Sunday school teachers there one day, and she was saying how that she just had her Sunday school class and that she had been teaching the children how the Lord would help them out of their troubles. And so she, at the end of the class, turned it over and she said, well, boys and girls, what do you think about Jesus? You tell me what you think about Jesus and what he would do for you. And this wee hand went up and he said, this wee boy said, he'd fair pull you out of a shock. <laughs> and you know that wee phrase always stuck with me. He'd fair pull you out of a shock. <laughs> it's a very County Armagh phrase, isn't it? But what a wonderful phrase. And that's the truth. You see, out in the mouths of babes and sucklings, the Lord has ordained strength. Now, I heard that little phrase probably 35 years ago or so, but it stuck with me. He'd fair pull you out of a shock. Whatever pit you're in, whatever shock you're in, God can do that for you. And I want you to go home today with hope in your heart. Whatever trouble you're in, just say to yourself, listen, bad as it seems, God is with me. He'll pull me out of the pit. No matter what anguish of soul you're experiencing, no matter what distress or trouble, no matter what fear, Christ can pull you out and set you up. The Lord is there for you today. Trust him. Believe his word. Go forward in faith and see that he can do what only he can do. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.